end, we'd like to dismiss our children up through fifth grade to Children's Church. You're welcome to return. Uh, just a heads up, though, little announcement for you. Starting next week through the rest of the month of August, we're going to be trying something a little different. We're going to be giving our uh, Children's Church teachers a break. This will be uh, until September. And instead, Lord willing, I'm excited about this. I'll be delivering a trio of messages on the Trinity, Tone for Our Little Ones. Uh, that mini-series will be entitled, Not for Kids Only, not exactly an original title, but I'm happy to reuse it. And uh, hopefully it'll be a lot of fun. I encourage you to bring your little ones, uh, invite maybe some of their friends to worship with you, uh, watch your preacher get out of his comfort zone, and uh, it should be fun. I'm looking forward to preaching uh, through that starting next week. Three messages called Not for Kids Only, so we hope you come and enjoy that. Ran across a... Um, thing here that I wanted to include. I found it this week on social media, and it wasn't planned. It was kind of a last-minute thing, but as we are going from politicking in the church, which was part one last week, and now we're going into part two, the conclusion, uh, I thought this would make kind of a nice little uh, addition. Uh, joke I found this week, and I know how much you love my joke, so this isn't mine. I told my son, you will marry the girl I choose. He said, no. I told him she is Bill Gates' daughter. He said, okay. I called Bill Gates and said, I want your daughter to marry my son. Bill Gates said no. I told Bill Gates my son is the CEO of World Bank. Bill Gates said, okay. I called the president of World Bank and asked him to make my son the CEO. He said, no. I told him my son is Bill Gates' son-in-law. He said, okay. <laughs> this is how politics works. I thought that was good, so kick it off with that. But last week in the Bible on politicking, we talked about the U.S. political system. We talked about the media and described a, a Christian response to both. And today we're going to be looking at politicking again. It's really a word, engaging in politics within your church family. Uh, people have funny ideas about what church is, don't we? we? We have funny ideas about it. There's a story told about a young boy who came to Sunday school late uh, one day. Knowing that he was usually on time, his teacher asked, Billy, is there anything wrong this morning? No, ma'am, not really, the boy replied. I was going to go fishing, but my daddy told me that I needed to get on up and go to church. The teacher said, and did your daddy tell you why it's more important to go to church than to go fishing? Yes, he did, Billy said. My daddy said he didn't have enough bait for both of us. <laughs> Cody's going to use that now. Great idea. Well, I learned something today. But like Billy's daddy, we use this expression, go to church or meet you at church or I've got church tomorrow. And as God's people, whether we intend to or not, sometimes we're guilty of making our faith all about a place, aren't we? About this place, the church. And that gets us into trouble when believers can turn a building, a church building, where Christians congregate to have church worship into the focus of their activity. We say, yeah, I'm a Christian offhandedly. I go to church. But that kind of language is problematic because the terminology we use is important. The words we use, that's important. Church is not a place that you and I go to on Sunday mornings. Church this word in the original language, ecclesia, refers to people. Refers to people. We, the people who are Christians, we are the church. Amen? We're the church. 
And God's word, the Bible, is very specific when it tells the church, God's people, how to treat one another. Got that noted up there uh, in the church. That's us. Turn with me here. We're going to look at Matthew 5. We uh, talked through this text earlier. I'll read it again. This scripture comes from uh, the Sermon on the Mount. should sound familiar to some of you. We talked through it from the pulpit at one point. But Jesus says this. He's saying this to his people. And he's saying this about his people, about his beloved people called the church. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And then down in verse 43, Jesus adds, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So when Christ speaks his expectations for his church, he seems to leave little room for competing interests, right? For competing interests in the church building. So no matter where your particular place of service lies within the kingdom, however you're serving God, Maybe you're involved in groundskeeping or security or worship ministry or you're a Sunday school teacher or you're a preacher. Uh, this particular subgroup you may be in, if you will, of Christian service has just as much merit as the next Christian. The one in the baby pantry or working youth ministry is just as important as the one in the sound booth. Just as important. We're all in this serving Christ and loving others thing together, aren't we? We're all in this together, and we need to be reminded of this, friends. Because if we ever get caught up in ministry for ministry's sake, in even a building for a building's sake, it's so easy for us to stop being the church and instead become people of church politics. People of church politics. When we care more about an organization, we care more about playing church than being the church. This is when we stop loving others. This is when we let tradition instead encompass us. Some Christians, for example, would like to argue that there are only certain kinds of music that are acceptable or not acceptable to be played within a church building. This is a real problem still for some congregations. You know, I think on the contrary, I think this congregation has been wonderful over the last half dozen or so years, at least in the way we've embraced, the way we've accepted the changing needs of worship ministry, to love a modern audience. This means it's not all stuffy when you come into Ferris Church of Christ on Sunday morning. No one's still uh, swinging a decanter and singing one of those minor thirds, Glory ex Padre do, you know? I should have made that more ridiculous, right? That was too serious. <laughs> I'll work on my orthodox chanting. We can turn on I worship and, and sing something contemporary or, my goodness, uh, use a guitar, a bass guitar, as long as you can put up with my bad notes that I hit. We can uh, sing something contemporary. And any opposing subgroups haven't been vocally upset about these things, at least not during my ministry here, and that's a blessing. 
So I love to say I serve here with a, a rural Michigan congregation where there may not be a 100% consensus of those sitting in the pews on what worship music should be. But we all know Cody has free reign to use all the secular dance songs he wants. I'm kidding. <laughs> the laughter started in the back. Now I'm hearing it working. It's me. I was just seeing if you're paying attention. Let's try that again. Not on your life, Josh. I just hear even if there's not 100% consensus of those sitting in the pews on what worship music should be, we're overall willing to put our individual preferences aside for the sake of someone else. And these are Christ's expectations for the church. They, these are. And that's a good thing. Because when that ugly line, we've just never done it that way, when this is a crutch by which we reinforce my way, my way, this is what church is to me. We're in trouble. When a subgroup within a church puts pressure on another subgroup to not act on a ministry idea within my church building about matters of Christian freedom, we're playing church building politics. And these are the kind that result not in growth, but church closings. When the ship starts to go down, it's going down eventually. I saw a cartoon. I didn't uh, save it this week, but it shows the ship and it starts turning and every every time we've never done it that way. That was starting to hurt my back, but you get the point. The ship is sinking. So what can we ask ourselves? What traditions can we give up between these walls? What do we need to re-examine for the sake of love, to better love and serve a neighbor? Remember, when the temple curtain was torn at the crucifixion in Matthew 27, 50, God's house no longer would be a physical temple. Instead, this is God's house, and that's God's house, and that's God's house. God lives within Christians. What can his church start doing or think about doing differently? And this is food for thought. It's food for thought with each changing generation. And speaking of food for thought, here's something to chew on. Acts chapter 6. The church has put aside competing interests of tradition before to better serve their community. This is a scriptural idea. In Acts chapter 6, remember, the idea of the diaconate, the church deacon, this came so that the Greek-speaking widows of the Jerusalem church could get the same food distribution as everyone else. The complaint that these other widow church members weren't being considered, it might have been shrugged off by the church, might have been shot down. Where do you draw the line on taking care of someone, right? The solution wasn't convenient. It wasn't already established church tradition at this point. Jerusalem had never done it that way. But out of love for people, out of spread for the gospel, seven men were newly appointed as church deacons to take care of the issue. One author writes, despite Christ's intentions, political solutions were indeed needed in the church before it had even left Jerusalem. Started there, went out Judea, spread to the world. That was God's plan for the gospel. But differing interests had to be brought together by making sure the ones neglected were represented. And I wonder if the church of Jerusalem had decided to continue only the processes they knew as church, only the traditions that they were comfortable with, instead of loving their neighbor, how quickly would the gospel have spread to the world? I don't know. You know, sometimes where there is more than one kind, history has shown 
it's sometimes difficult to completely cast politics aside. We're still seeing that today in our culture, aren't we? Got some pretty pictures up here, uh, courtesy of Karen. Thanks for finding these. These uh, paint a much better picture than I can. Uh, than anybody ever been to the island nation of Fiji? Oh, I thought I'd at least see one hand out there. Okay, so uh, this could not be Fiji, and you wouldn't know the difference, right? Well, anyway, Karen tells me this is Fiji, so we'll go with that. This is Fiji. Author John Paulian writes about this about the island nation of Fiji. Two main subgroups, both native Fijians and Asian Indians, live side by side. And Paulian writes, The natives tend to farm and live in the countryside. The Indians tend to be in business and live in the cities and towns. Religiously, the groups differ as well. So when it comes to dividing up to sharing the nation's uh, resources, the interests of both groups almost always differ. They almost always differ. So the way to keep the peace, he concludes, is to make sure the respective political interests of both are kept in a balance, are kept in a balance across this great island nation. Well, at first, Bible readers may be tempted to argue this is the same situation faced by the early church in Acts chapter 6. Uh, these two subgroups within the church, they'd never be completely free of their own competing interests, so the only answer was to make everybody happy in their own groups, basically keeping them to use a dangerous, very dangerous phrase from history, separate but equal. But here's the thing. The church functions differently than the world. In the church, who you are, where you're from, doesn't determine the group where you belong, amen? What does God's word say? When Jesus says, love your neighbor, he's not implying, but still keep them in a separate subgroup from yourself, amen? Paul writes this in Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And this is the amazing thing about the church, about God's people. The playing field is level. It is for all of us. And that's a very good thing. It's what separates us from the world of politics, where the politics of man, where we see inequality, where we see the inevitable civil rights movements to equal everyone out, God's word has already declared all people as equals in the kingdom of God. No place for subgroups of any kind. Amen? So I don't care who your enemy is. You're to love that individual. We're to love one another. There's no questions about it. Personal interests, the world divide us. The cross unites us. The cross unites us, amen? I was sharing a laugh with a, a close friend of mine this previous week on a, a long commute. We've been friends for just a few years, but we've agreed that had we met in high school, it's likely we wouldn't have exactly sat at the same lunch table together. You remember how much fun high school was for some of us? <laughs> Where the, the good-looking, or trying not to split into political subgroups as I'm telling you this, but the good-looking athletic people and, and, the, and the ugly, dorky people usually weren't allowed to, to breathe the same air, you know? Unless one of them happened to be a Christian, then the politics might have been different. Because that's what Jesus does. And that's what uh, my friend, friend and I agreed on. 
He cuts through our politics, even as adults. Last week, we mentioned how neither the man-made Republican nor Democrat are superior on the Christian party platform. There's also no Jew or Greek or athlete in brain using high school slang because the gospel's meant for everyone, and that's good news for dorks like me. I thought I'd hear some amens for that. <laughs> I know Luke was really ready there, and then, you know, he thought the better of it. So where do we go? Where do we go from here with church politicking? Well, I'll put it this way. This small country congregation called Fair Church of Christ, we just celebrated 150 years together. Praise God. Praise God. Look at what he has done. But I don't think the secret of our longevity is because of political maneuvering. I don't think the secret of our longevity is because we're, we're closed off, inward-thinking, click-divided group of snobs. I think it's, and I don't think we are. It's because for 151 years, the heaven-bound here have come together beyond fellowship hall lunch tables as one church for the sake of short- and long-term missionaries, teachers and Timothys, a local church camp, benevolence programs, a baby pantry, small groups with open doors to other congregations, mission services, vacation Bible school programs, and other events across Montcalm County and beyond. And I believe God has blessed these efforts, don't you? I believe God has blessed these efforts. In the past five years of my ministry here at Ferris, I can't count the number of times I've heard from various members of our community, Ferris Church of Christ, that's the church that hosts those wonderful memorial dinners. They really took care of my aunt and her family several years ago. Strangers. Or the number of times I've heard from neighbors, you know, your church helped me out five years ago to get out of a financial bind I was in. I'll never forget the way they were a blessing to me, and they gave when nobody else would. I hear that. I've heard from members of this congregation, God has always blessed our church to keep serving on this corner, even when other churches in our area are struggling, closing doors. But it's because when people are saying the church, when people are saying our church, they really don't essentially care about a church building. Not that this isn't a beautiful church building, it is. But ultimately, they don't care about a church building or which individuals gather around what tables or what our pet traditions are. They've been blessed by us. They've been blessed by the people of Ferris Church of Christ. And you and you and you and you and I have been blessed because we've stayed busy blessing one another. There may have been resistance to certain programs. There may have been resistance to uh, this ministry or that ministry, even after they've been in progress. But we can be challenged to continue laying aside our personal politics, our personal preferences. If there's any chance they're going to get in the way of the work God has to do here. That's the challenge for us. How can we better love and serve? But this isn't just about Ferris Church of Christ, as in the organization. At the heart, politics is about each individual participant within, right? It's about you and you and you and me. Has Jesus made you aware of a need? Have you held stubbornly on to all those reasons why you can't get involved? Why can't you help out with the youth program or teach a class or, for goodness sake, sit one Sunday a month in the nursery? Is there a reason? Do you really think you're too young or you're too old or you think you're not knowledgeable enough or that's just not your calling? Have you not heard that God doesn't call the qualified? He qualifies the called. 
If you would have seen your minister around 15 years ago, I was a spiritual mess, and my wife can vouch for that, but she likes me a little, so she, I hope she doesn't. Thanks, dear. You would have never thought God could get me past my personal agenda, my politics. Come on, I was lucky to get up past the crack of noon. You never would have thought that today I'd be serving him in, in ministry. I wasn't even interested in the cliche having church. But today, nearly five years after entering full-time ministry, God is still using me, still using me to preach. I had naysayers. I had naysayers within the church that knew me. But church politics don't matter. They don't matter. Maybe you honestly feel like, how do I love my neighbor? I don't know which ministry to get plugged into here. Maybe politics in the pew have in the past scared you away from wanting to get involved. And if that's the truth, that's okay. If your answer falls into the one of the first couple categories, come talk to me. Come see one of the elders because we want to get you plugged in. God has a place for you here at Ferris Church. But if you're afraid to get involved loving and serving somebody because of issues, maybe with the status quo of the past, I want to assure you of one thing. Yes, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to deal with church politics. You're going to have to deal with them. Whether the issue is budget decisions or colors of church walls or something hurtful, someone might say to you at a meeting, it's going to happen. Why? Because a broken church is not made up of a perfectly designed church building. That would be nice. But instead, it's made up of imperfect people just like me. And from time to time, some of your brothers and sisters are going to find fault with you. They may even talk about you behind your back. They may even form a subgroup about an issue that involves you. But may these things be exercises in humility. Philippians 2 verse 3, as we do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's not easy to do. But that's what the Bible says to do. Thinking of the words of Jesus, sometimes we just have to forget about the eye, we just have to forget about the tooth and just love that person back. Love them back. Our best attempts at avoiding church politics are going to fail from time to time because we're broken, we're sinners. But even at the time of the apostles, God's united people then could struggle with being God's people united you want to look with me at Acts chapter 15, I'd like to talk through this Bible story with you. Verses 36 to 40. Maybe this could really help us today with these issues. Here, Paul is contemplating a second missionary journey with fellow missionary Barnabas. In verse 36, we're going to read through verse 40. You can follow along with me on the screen if you like. Verse 36 says, And after some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Okay, now picture this. Remember at this point in our early church history, Paul and Barnabas were the best of friends. They were like me and, and my friend. 
They were fellow co-workers, fellow believers, good brothers in the faith. They even had their own acoustic group together called Till Easter Morning. Not really. <laughs> Threw that in there. Maybe that's apocryphal. Pseudofigria? Elders are going to come see me when I'm done here. But when the Apostle Paul was converted to Christianity, it was Barnabas that vouched for him as a believer in Acts 15, verse 26. These guys were tight. And knowing Paul's history, I would doubt these two would have sat at the high school lunch table together. But at this, at this point in time, they were, certainly, they were certainly a couple of bros. You know what I mean? But Paul and Barnabas were also two different individuals. They had two different personalities, two different sets of opinions about their work in Christ. And though they'd traveled this first missionary journey together with the cousin of the latter, John Mark, says Colossians 4.10, when John Mark had decided to pack up his things and abandon the other two at a difficult time during that journey, he kind of rubbed Paul the wrong way. And here in Acts 15.37, Barnabas, and remember Barnabas, uh, his name means son of encouragement, which kind of helps tell you a little bit about his character. Barnabas wants to bring John Mark back with them on the road. There was no high five about it. Paul's thinking, I don't think so, bro. I'll stop with that bro thing now. But the Bible says there's such a sharp disagreement between these two Christians, these two missionaries, these two actual apostles of Jesus, that they literally go their separate ways. They go their separate ways in Scripture. One of them certainly could have turned the other cheek. I'm sure that's what Christ ultimately would have preferred. But instead, a political solution was reached to solve the problem of this brotherly disagreement. Today in the church, we often travel down the same kinds of paths. They can lead to separation, even with good companions, don't we? Even on a missionary journey, this is possible. For the cause of Christ, we allow disagreements to cause division. We turn a cold shoulder to others. We form subgroups. When we as Christ followers could probably just turn the other cheek. I'm not picking on anybody specifically in this church because on the contrary, I've seen the elders and the deacons of Ferris truly love one another. As we talked about last week in gentleness and respect by wisely chasing the cross of Christ instead of going down this path of Paul and Barnabas. There's no uh, doubt in my mind that uh, the leaders of this church choose love over political maneuvering when there's disagreement between them. I've, I've witnessed it. Let's throw out the following hypothetical situation this morning. Let's say that someone were to make a, a sizable donation to the church, uh, say this afternoon. Let's say that this money is used to improve the facility and equipment and no more specifics are given. Here's a good question for our elders and deacons. And I feel like I'm hosting a game show here. Answer the question carefully, Mr. Essex. Several dozen thousand dollars depend on it. I thought he'd at least snicker at that. She's like, you didn't. <laughs> Get back to the question. Do we spend that money on a sanctuary and soundboard replacement or a kitchen remodel? Answer the question carefully. You get one shot. And by the way, let's say hypothetically in this situation, we've paid for the furnace already, okay? Well, if you ask the musicians on stage this question, then you ask those in charge of food prep, you're likely to get two different answers. You're likely to get two different answers. And I have a feeling some of the memorial service contributors might have an opinion on that one. And you might sway the preacher if you let me know if there's any pecan pie in it for me. But point is, this is church politics. It's so easy. It's unavoidable. So what do we do? What do we do in cases like this? 
Someone has said, as a Christian, I can't always be right, so I'd rather err on the side of love. Let me say that again. As Christians, we can't always be right, but we can choose to err on the side of love politically. I can't always tell you how to choose, how to make the best decisions. Prayer helps in this decision-making, says the book of James. But I do know this. Every time we'll err, guaranteed, if God's people, if we prefer any institution, any particular ministry, even the opinion of one specific minister, over love for one's neighbor. Love always must win. There's the politics of the world, and then there's the cross. Then there's the cross. Here's a final staggering statistic for this series as we're, we're wrapping up five weeks we've spent together. One organization says there are 19,000, 19,000 major scarring church conflicts in the U.S. annually. That's 50 per day. This is the devil at work. This is the devil at work in the church trying to stop the spread of the gospel. But the author and the perfecter of our faith and the one who went to that cross and died on that cross and shed his blood for each and every sin and each and every instance of political maneuvering we might be capable of doing, kneeled before the Father. And what did he do? He prayed for unity. Prayed for complete unity among his people, his church, for one reason, John 17, 20-23, so that the world will know he was sent to them. Amen? Politics of the world and then the cross of Calvary. So what will it be? What will it be for each one of us? Are we going to play politics? Not just within this church building, but as the church. Or will we work to serve one another? The choice is ours to make every day. But our answer will make all the difference if we desire to follow the words of heaven, share those words with the world that's going to hell. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today, and again, we're amazed by you. You You are truly an awesome God. And Lord, sometimes we wonder when when we look at, at the evil that we are capable of. We see the, the hate that has sometimes been in the church. Lord, forgive us. We pray, O oh God, that you would forgive us of seeking anything less than love as an answer, of coming before you representing anything other than the gospel. Lord, we know it is your will that that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Your word tells us this. So Lord, I just pray that you would would fuel us, that your spirit would, would drive us into this world. That Lord, we would truly desire to not be people that are swayed left or right or or any other way, Lord, but that we would stand firmly on solid rock. 
Lord, that our answers wouldn't be political ones, but Christian ones. Lord, I thank you for, for the Bible. And I thank you for your spirit. I thank you that, that we have all that we need in this world. Not because we can save it, not that you've left that up to us, but because you've already overcome the world and you are capable of saving all of us. Lord, help us to, to desire to resist Satan to resist his attacks upon your church. Lord, we know that, that the gates of hell cannot have power over the church, and we thank you for that. But Lord, it comes down to us every day. Lord, if, if we must be political, let us be political out of love. Help us to remember, Lord, that disagreements and subgroups, these are these are human things. But in you, we, we can truly be free. And we can truly stand on a foundation that will last forever. God, we thank you for the promises of eternity. We thank you for that shed blood. Let it be our example as we move forward. It is in the name of Jesus. I pray these things. Amen. And today, as again, as we've wrapped up this series, it all comes back to this again. Have we made that decision in all of our ways to give our life to Jesus and let him do what his will is through us? We make that decision every day. You know, we have this foundation. Do we stand on it? If you have a public decision that you need to make, if you have not gone down into those waters of baptism, ever and ever eternity I say this every week but it's so important that we remember this is a limited offer limited offer if there's someone in your life that you know of and we all do that needs to accept Christ that needs that gift of salvation that needs to go down into those waters of baptism please take this message to them it's the most important message they'll ever hear we're going to stand and sing our invitation song